We look at this text today, and I want to make a simple argument for you, all right? The simple argument is this, that Saul's conversion is so radical that it ought to change us. And you're like, you're kidding me, Bradley. That's what this is about? I think that that's what these verses are about. We studied Saul's conversion last week and what happened to him. The idea that God chose to take the one who persecuted his church to become the one through whom his church went into the Gentile nations. We were amazed by that. But this week, I want you to see that Saul's conversion is so radical that it ought to change us. And I'm only going to give you two ways, of, uh, three technically, of how it's so radical. Um, but I really want to sit in a minute about how it ought to change you. What it ought to lead you to do as you step up from this place and go out. All right, so that's where the, the force of this is going to come. I want to show you how radical it is. I think that as Luke writes to Theophilus, and you remember that's what this is, the second volume of the letter that Luke wrote to Theophilus, that Theophilus might be competent in everything that he had come to be taught. That what he's doing here is he's saying, Luke, I want, or he's saying, Theophilus, I want you to see this. Jesus took the persecutor of his church, Saul, and he made him his chosen shepherd to the Gentiles. And he even protected him by the church that he persecuted. I think it's amazing what he's done, and I want to show you the radicalness of this. As I was trying to consider how radical this might be, it's more radical than the most radical political flip-flop you can imagine. It's, it's more radical than that because it isn't just ideology that changes Paul. It's action. You know, we have seen the images, or at least you've heard of the images if your parents were quick enough to stop you from seeing them, of, of terrorists beheading Christians. And you've got to understand that these Christians who witnessed what Saul did didn't have to look at images. They had been there and seen as they stoned Stephen, Saul's support of that. This is radical transformation. And what you see in the very first one is that Saul immediately changes. Look at this as it says it here in verse 19, the second half, as was pointed out to us very well. For some days he was with his disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And in just a few verses down, it says that Saul increased more and more in strength as he proclaimed this, and that he confounded the Jews, in verse 22, who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Immediately, the apostle Saul went from persecuting, killing, violently treating Christians, dragging them off, to immediately proclaiming that Jesus was the Son of God and God's Christ, God's Messiah. This is incredible, that he changed so quickly. I don't remember who it was, but we were talking one time about podcasts, and we ended up talking about wasps. And do you, you know these wasps are incredible creatures. And if you don't know this, be careful before you go looking at YouTube, because it is a black hole of information that you'll get sucked into, and you know this. Or maybe you'll say a wasp's hole. But did you know that there are wasps that actually sting 
other creatures and use them for their own purposes. It's unbelievable. There's one wasp that stings cockroaches, paralyzes them, drives them by their own antenna into their own hole and uses them for their own purposes. There's another wasp that's amazing that actually stings a spider, actually doesn't even sting a spider, but lays its prey on a spider. And that larva co-ops the natural tendencies of the spider to create something for itself. It's unbelievable. And I want you to see that what happened to the Apostle Paul is more unbelievable. The man had studied for decades as a Pharisee, and God immediately took his gifts and used them for his purposes to proclaim that Jesus was the Son of God and his Messiah. It happened immediately. It is incredible. He used all of his learning and all of his education. And the response to Saul was one of two kinds. It was one of people who were filled with amazement. It was two of those who wanted to kill him. And it's through this effort of wanting to kill him that Luke unpacks for Theophilus and that we can see together how radical it is that Jesus took the persecutor of the church and actually made him his chosen shepherd and he actually protected him by the very church that he had persecuted. The first clue is this, and it comes from the way he'd escaped in Damascus. Look at verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. Imagine trying to kill the apostle Saul. I mean, that's a crazy idea, isn't it? You might as well try to kill another gangster, right? How, how is another gangster not going to pick up on whatever plan you have to kill them? The apostle Paul, Saul figured it out. But he found himself trapped inside someone's room because in another place in Acts 22, it actually says that the governor of Damascus, on behalf of the king, was waiting for Saul and had posted guards at the gate. And it said, as soon as you see him, arrest him and bring him to me. They were going to kill him. And it says here that Saul was rescued by the disciples who took him by night, verse 25, and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. You've got to remember that Luke has more stories than he can possibly tell about the acts of Jesus from heaven through the power of the Holy Spirit by the disciples. He has more stories than he can tell, and he picks this one. Why? Well, if you know your Old Testament, you know that God delivers his deliverers in miraculous ways, three of which have to do with baskets, right? And you begin to shake your head and you go, huh, I do remember in Joshua that time that those spies were lowered down, <clears throat> rescued through a basket. You may not know of another one where David, God's chosen king, his appointed one, was actually rescued by being lowered out of a window from his house. And even Moses, right? Even Moses rescued with a basket. Luke is encouraging Theophilus to think about who Saul is. The second one comes in this section that comes next. We're told in verse 26 that when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. Now imagine what that would be like, right? Imagine what it would be like for Saul to try to step into the lives of, of Stephen's aunts and uncles, some of whom were his brothers and sisters, all of whom were still grieving Stephen's death. And the one who orchestrated it says, hey, can I come in and worship with you? <laughs> You're like, no. 
and they wouldn't let him. But it says in verse 27 that Barnabas took him and brought him into the apostles and declared to them what had happened to Saul. He says that how on the road Saul had seen the Lord who had spoken to him and how at Damascus Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And then here's the last of this radical conversion of Saul. It says in verse 28, so he, Saul, went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. This idea of Saul going in and out among them is not haphazardly spoken by Luke. Luke uses this concept in another place. It's actually in chapter 1 when they're choosing Matthias to replace Judas as a disciple. Remember, and they say something. They say, we've got to choose among those who have been with us ever since Jesus walked in and out among us. It's kind of code. You go, interesting, he's only used it of Jesus. And if you search this idea of walking in and out among us, guess where it comes from in the Old Testament? The first one that you could find is in Numbers 27. And Moses, as he leads God's people, is called one who walks in and out among us. David in 2 Samuel 5 is talked and described as one who walked in and out among them. In fact, we're told that Saul hated David because David walked in and out among them. And if you think, well, why in the world did he care if he came in one door and out the other? That's not what it means. It means that he was leading God's people. That they began to look at Saul and go, you are a unique chosen instrument. And you see, what Luke is telling Theophilus is that Jesus has taken this persecutor of the church, and has made him his chosen shepherd, his chosen instrument. You remember when Jesus spoke to Ananias just a few verses before and said, I have chosen Paul or Saul. I've chosen him. Remember Saul, Paul, they're the same. You remember this? Saul, Hebrew name, Paul, Roman name. Paul was a Roman citizen, right? The gifts that Paul had, his education, his natural talents, not just co-opted by Jesus, zombified so that he would do his own bidding, but transformed by encountering the risen Christ so that he was forever changed. Jesus took the persecutor of the church and made him his chosen shepherd. And because of that, the church protected him. You see that what happened is that the church realized that again they were going to kill Paul, or kill Saul rather. And as they were seeking to kill him, when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea. Now, for us, down is often to the south, but that's not to the south of Jerusalem. It's more to the kind of to the uh, west and to the north. And then he went on from there further north up toward Tarshish, which is up around the corner, almost into Turkey, which is where Paul was from. They sent him home, and they said, you can't be killed here because they realized what Jesus had done in his life. Paul talks about this in Acts 22 later, and he actually says that during this time he was in Jerusalem, he was praying, and Jesus came to him and he said, look, Saul, you need to leave this place. And Saul said, but, but these people know me. They know that I persecuted the church. And he essentially says in Acts 22, if they know that I persecuted the church and they see how radically I've been changed, won't they believe my 
proclamation. And Jesus says, I have chosen you to send you to the ends of the earth that the Gentiles would know me. Jesus took the persecutor of his church and he made him his chosen shepherd to the Gentiles. And he even protected him by the very church that he had persecuted. So here's your applications. Are you ready for this? This is amazing. This passage is amazing. And I want to tell you, sit in it this week until it becomes amazing for you. Read it this week. And go back through and see the parts that I've pointed out to you. So that you can say with the hymn writer, Oh, what wondrous love is this, oh my soul. Oh my soul. What wondrous love is this, oh my soul. This is how Jesus works in the hearts of his people. You see, the Christians who began to understand who Jesus was watched the Apostle Paul and they were amazed. And Luke records this for Theophilus. He records this for us. This is recorded divinely inspired for us that we would be amazed at God's redemptive purposes. But not just that. The second one is this. We ought to have a different perspective on persecution. Instead of running from it, we ought to think as soon as we begin to sense persecution, not the idea of I'm going to shut my mouth. I don't want my friends to know that I'm a Christian. I don't want to say the name of Jesus. There was somebody that gave testimony to this woman's life yesterday. And the woman whom we buried is a believer. And this other woman was a believer. And she told me that she said, I'm afraid to say the name of Jesus in front of all these people who aren't Christians because I'm afraid that they'll persecute me. But if I don't, my pastor is going to be mad at me and Bradley's going to be mad at me. <laughs> but that's the wrong idea to have with this idea of persecution. I'm afraid of it. I want you to see, just read two verses with me. Read the very first part of Acts 8. And Saul approved of his execution, it says, of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. And you begin to go, oh man, persecution is horrible. But then you remember what Jesus did with Philip as Philip shared the gospel in Samaria and with the Ethiopian eunuch, and now what he does to the Apostle Paul, so that the end of 32 simply says this, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. Guess what we ought to do when we sense persecution? The first thing that you ought to have come to your mind, Jesus must be at work. And you ought to open your eyes wider and say, where is Jesus at work? And the chance is it's most likely in your heart first. That's not only what's happening here, but there is underlying this a power of forgiveness, isn't there? And it is a very real human tension. There's this great episode of Malcolm Gladwell who does revisionist history stuff. I don't know if you guys have been listening to that. But in his second season, there's this one titled On the Road to Damascus. 
And it's all about this terrorist who had, who had ravaged the world with terror in the 70s and 80s, how he flip-flopped and became an informant in the CIA. But the whole kind of gist of the podcast, and I won't tell it to you, you ought to go listen to it, is the tension of being able to forgive. And is it possible to be transformed? Is it possible to forgive? And you see that here in this passage, don't you? You see it first with Ananias, who didn't want to go see Saul when Saul was blind. You see it of the disciples who were amazed by Saul in Damascus. And then you see it by the disciples in Jerusalem. And if it weren't for Barnabas, who came on behalf of Saul's side, we don't even know if Saul would have been allowed in the presence of the disciples. But underneath this is the real tension of forgiveness. And what we see at the heart of this is that Jesus forgives Saul. Now look, that means that whatever it is that you think Jesus can't forgive in you, you're wrong. Jesus forgives. But what it also means is that you then have to forgive who is that individual that you cannot forgive, that you won't forgive, that you said, no, I'm not forgiving? You see, underneath all of this is actually this unbelievable lesson of forgiveness. We see it in Jesus and in Ananias and in Barabbas. You want to know one of the testimonies that was given to a crowd of non-believers about the death of this woman Yesterday, she stood up as one who also isn't a believer and said, I want to tell you something about Marianne. She taught me forgiveness. She taught me forgiveness. And I tell you, to know forgiveness and hear the seed of the gospel, to plant into forgiveness is such great hope of conversion one day. Psalm 34 says, with you there is forgiveness, God, that you might be feared. And that's the next to last application, to walk in the fear of the Lord. It says here in verse 31 that they, the church, was walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and it multiplied, the church. What we ought to take from this, if we truly are amazed at God's work in his church, and I am saying to you, you ought to be amazed at God's work in your own life. Because though you may not have been a murderer, you were dead in your sins and transgressions before God made you alive in Christ. That should amaze you. What that ought to do in you and me, in us, is to make us walk in the fear of the Lord. Now remember, it's the fear of human beings that drives you away from them. The fear of the Lord, something that is so grand as forgiveness, something that is so grand and glorious is the power of a God who orchestrates all of life is like Niagara Falls that you walk toward, not away from, right? So to walk in the fear of the Lord is to draw close to him. The first thing it is about is extolling the Lord. It's extolling the name of Jesus. We're told in Acts 19 that when they feared the Lord, they extolled the name of Jesus and they began to confess the other things in which they had put their security. 
And I want to ask you, what are the other things in which you are putting your security right now? Will you confess them? Because you know that God is powerfully at work in your life. Deuteronomy 6 says, when we fear the Lord, we take his commandments seriously. We actually study the Ten Commandments and we take them seriously. When's the last time you actually read through the Ten Commandments? Read them. And applied them to your life and say, where am I not taking these seriously, God? How would you lead me? To be filled with the fear of the Lord, Psalm 22 says that we praise his name. Proverbs 8 says that when we fear the Lord, we turn away from pride and arrogance. How many of you believe that the person who knows you best would actually say of you, yeah, pretty much filled with pride, pretty arrogant, actually. You know the antidote for that is the fear of the Lord. And lastly, of just a smattering of opportunities to fear the Lord. Proverbs 23 says the fear of the Lord is the way that you can put to death envy. What are you envious of when you look at somebody else's life? Well, you know what will put that to death? is to draw near to God and to fear him. And to go, unbelievable, this is how you work. Finally, to walk in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I wish that I had 20 more minutes to talk about that, but I don't. You want to know what's interesting about this? Every time Luke uses the idea of comfort in all of Acts, it is always in the presence of Barnabas. Isn't that funny? To walk in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, every time Luke uses the idea of comfort, it is always in the presence of Barnabas. Does anybody remember Barnabas' first name? Not what his name stands for, but his first name. You know, no, I don't remember. We've always called him Barnabas since chapter 4. And everything in the future calls him Barnabas. His first name is Joseph. His nickname is Barnabas, son of encouragement. Luke is saying to walk in the comfort of the Holy Spirit by identifying the comfort of the Holy Spirit with Barnabas every time is that the Holy Spirit incarnates his encouragement into his people. You see, this idea of the conversion of Luke is not so that, or the conversion of Saul is not so that you can say, I too have had a Damascus Road experience. It's actually to say that is the most unbelievable conversion I have ever seen. And in your amazement at the power of Jesus, to begin to be women and men who look at each other and say, you want to do something? I see God at work in your life. If the penny drops from this passage for us as a church, we will become men and women of encouragement. We won't be stoic. We won't match the New England culture that we are born from. But we will be men and women who encourage one another. Not by going, oh, you're good enough. You can do that. Great job. You know you have the ability. But like Barnabas to say, I want you to see how I see God working in your life. And I want to encourage you. Because this will make our congregation look different than the world in which we live.
Saul's conversion is so radical that it ought to change us. This is how I think it should change us. Let's pray and see what Jesus wants to do in us.